0: to Hacking the Hustle. This is your host, Benjamin Sklar, and I'm really excited to have Carlos Horn on the podcast. How you doing, Carlos?
1: Good, Benji. Thank you for having me here. Uh, this podcast is visual, not just audio, right? Correct. So that's the horn right there. That's the Carlos Horn. You get it?
0: No, I don't. I don't get
1: it. You got to grab, grab life by the horns. You got to grab the bull by the horns. Take All, right.
0: All right, I like that. So, so for those listening, Carlos is a fellow classmate of mine at Brooklyn Law School. He's a great guy, really smart member of the student body, and he's a former soldier. He, he was in the U.S. Navy for many years as a submariner, meaning he worked on submarines and now he's in law school with me and I've invited him on the podcast cuz I feel like he's a really interesting guy who sees life in a unique way. So welcome to the show Carlos.
1: Thank you Benji. Thanks again. Um, <clears throat> yeah, you're right. I was in the US Navy. I wouldn't say I was a soldier. I think the technical term is that I was a sailor, but I really don't feel like a sailor either cuz it's not like we're like drawing up the sails to go shipping on the high seas. We're in a submarine like uh, several meters under the water doing super secret spy stuff. Um, but I wasn't doing super secret spy stuff. I was like I was like the Russian in the movie, in the show uh, Away. Have you seen that Netflix show Away? Uh,
0: yes, I have. I didn't know he was a spy for Russia though.
1: Yeah, the, the the Russian cosmonaut, that was me. He was the engineer. And he had that very thick accent and he was always yeah. like poking and prodding people. And yes. uh, he was both uh, abrasive and charming. Yeah. And so that was that was me for eight years of my life. In fact, in fact, that was near, that was me just three years ago. And here I am, three years removed from the submarine and I'm about to start my career as an attorney. It's far out, it's a fairy tale. It really is, it's a fairy tale type of tale. Uh, And I think I can reasonably say, only in America, only in America, Don King, right? Amazing. So Carlos, tell us about your life journey.
0: How did you end up going to law school? What, What are you doing in law school? What are your goals moving forward?
1: Um. Wow, there's a lot to unpackage there. Um. Well, talk to us about where, law school. How's your experience so far? Where do I begin? Oh, so far in law school. Oh man, you got to take the good with the bad. Um, everyone knows going into law school that it will be tough, uh, but no one really understands how tough it is until you're in it. I have had to sacrifice mental health, uh, physical health, family health, um, social health, just to try to achieve as much as I want to achieve in law school. And it's really taken a toll. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's very competitive. And what makes it so much harder is that for many people, um, you just... I'm not even sure if it's worth it. I mean, law school is expensive. And you don't even know what your job will be officially uh, upon graduation, whether you will even have a job and what your salary will be. Um, So uncertainties is what risk is. And so there's a lot of uncertainty while you're in law school for many of us, including myself. And so you feel like there's a lot of risk still you're in the middle of law school and you feel like there's so much risk about what your future is going to entail. And well, um, risk, uh, the higher the risk, I guess I was going to say the higher the risk, the less um, reward there may be. But That sounds kind of counterintuitive because the the normal saying is the higher the risk, the higher the reward. That's true in finance. Um, And using that same logic in finance, the reason higher risk causes the reward to be so high is because the higher risk investments you buy for the cheapest price. So you're getting these bottom dollar risky investments and you reap all that reward when it exceeds expectations. Um, so here we are in law school, it's very high risk and it feels like a bottom dollar type of investment. So, I mean, hopefully it pans out and there is a huge reward. But again, using the same logic of risk to reward, um, the risky investments aren't guaranteed to be high reward. It's a select few of those risky investments. And so, I think you and I are sort of um, we are sympathetic with the notion that just don't know how this law school experience is going to turn out. It's also unfair, I think, to, to peg all of law school on what your job is right out of law school, because really law school prepares you to be an attorney, it prepares you to be a lawyer, prepares you to be an advocate. Uh, In the legal system, which means that you're an advocate for for the people, for the Constitution, to be honest. And that is a career that takes decades. It will take the rest of your life. So you are what you make of your career, or rather, your career is what you make of it. And so it's unfair in the law schools to judge them based solely on your job immediately after law school. Um, so I think I've talked a a lot about something, uh, that speaks to a little bit of what you're asking, but that's, that's how I feel about that.
0: That was really interesting. It was well said. And I feel like something that could help you would be rather than seeing what law school is going to give you in terms of your career. If you see it in terms of your calling, you might have a longer term, more exciting viewpoint.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, since we're in law school and you don't know what your first job will be, and by extension, you don't know what your career has in store for you. So you try to think about all the possible permutations. If you've ever watched Avengers Endgame, who hasn't? Well, was it Endgame or was it or was it the one prior, Infinity War, where Dr. Strange is, like, doing his Dalai Lama thing and he was, like, receiving the information from, like, the 1,800,632 different possibilities in the future. And you remember
0: that scene, right? No, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, <laughs>
1: Dr. Strange, Dr. Strange says that based on 1,800,363 uh, permutations of the future, we have just one chance of success. That was in uh, Avengers uh, Infinity War. But Carlos, let me ask
0: you, what does a typical day look like for you right now in your life?
1: And that, that's the thing that takes away from my health, social health, mental health, physical health. A, a, a perfect ideal day would be a day spent probably... 10 hours uh, on the computer. Um, Looking at what? Doing what? Different things. Um, Reading, researching, writing. Um, So those are the three things, really. That's all the three things that lawyers do. You read, you research, and you write. That's all a lawyer does. And it sounds simple enough. But when you're reading, researching, and writing about this one area of the law, and then break, break, oh, I have to do this other class now, and this other class has to do with this other area of the law, and the two don't really speak to each other, it's very difficult for me to sort of shift gears and get into a different mode of thinking to then read, research, and write about this other subject. Um, The whole shifting gears and moving from one subject to another is, is tough, like I wish I can just be in my career already, be in my job and just worry about what my job is. Not to say that when you're, in, when you're in your job, you don't have to worry about anything else other than whatever the body of law is already because the law is always evolving and is affected by different things. But it gives, I think it's reasonable to think that once you are at a job, you don't have to think about all these disparate subjects of the law, for example, just to like give you a a, a sample of what my what, what my current day to day is. in the same day, uh let's take um, yesterday, for example, I spent three hours uh, reading, researching and writing uh, about bankruptcy. And then I spent the following five hours reading, researching, and writing about criminal law. Um, and it's just that interim period between going from one to the other is tough on me. It's, it's, uh, there's no way to there's no other way for me to put it uh, without getting into the nitty gritty, but it's tough on me. It
0: makes sense. What what advice would you have for someone pursuing a career in law, about to go to law school? Yeah. If you could sit down with them and tell them your advice, what would you say?
1: I, it's a good question. Um I would tell someone coming into the law uh, to not make some of the mistakes I made, I guess that's the easiest answer. What are those? Uh, Right. That's the next question is then, well, what are some of the mistakes you've made, Carlos? I think one of the mistakes I made was thinking that I would receive all the support that I want or desire from my professors at a moment's notice. Um, I, yeah, I think I would invite people coming to law school to work hard on developing relationships with their law professors. Um, by working hard on establishing those relationships, I mean, if I went to their office hours once or twice a semester, I recommend going to their office a dozen times in the semester. And I see that the people who are top of the class do that. They go to their professors quite often. Um, So that would be one thing that I would recommend, is go to your law professor's office hours as often as possible. Um,
0: What's a a common myth about law school that you would like to debunk?
1: Common myth about law school that I would like to debunk is, there's so many. Uh, I'd like to bounce it back. Well, tell me what is a common myth about law school? There's so many. What do you think? Probably any one I could debunk. So let's pick one.
0: Interesting. Uh, Let's think about all the people out there in the country, around the world who are interested in applying to law school right now. They just took the LSAT, or they're considering taking the LSAT. I assume they're either seniors in college or have worked for a few years post-college, or even like us who were in the military and then consider going that route i think they a lot of people have this idea of what being a lawyer is from tv shows and they don't know that it really is those three bullet points that you said earlier of researching writing and reading and reading those are the three things that lawyers really do that lawyers are really writers and i didn't really appreciate that also until I came to law school and I've learned a lot about who, who I want to be post law school. And I think the biggest myth that you want that I should debunk is you don't have to be a practicing attorney to be a lawyer. You can be a lawyer like me, graduate from law school, pass the bar, but then you can go into business. You can go into different fields of of work without having to actually use your license in the courtroom and still benefit from all those years of law. And, and, but the challenge is going to be, was it worth it? Was the three years, was the money, was it worth it? And I don't know. Well, I guess we'll have to find out in the future.
1: Yeah. That's a, it's funny. I interviewed for a company maybe a month ago um, where the CEO was a recent Harvard law grad Mm -hmm. and it's a tech company Mm -hmm. and the tech company um, had to do with aggregating contracts and telling their customer what are the best provisions to include in the contract Mm -hmm. um the interview was with the ceo and it came out in the interview that he was a recent harvard law grad but after graduating from harvard law he decided to not even take the bar Mm -hmm. and instead pursue this company and um one i think that's awesome Two, I think that might actually be kind of uh, particular to the fact that he graduated from Harvard law mm-hmm. and three uh, I don't think he could have done this company, a company about uh, aggregating contract clauses, unless he had law school training. Right. So
0: um, what do you feel like are the biggest challenges in your role right now as a father and law student?
1: Oh, the biggest challenge is to keep up with the image that um, everything is under control and to keep up with the um, image that everything is going to be hunky-dory. Don't worry about everything. I guess that's sort of what a lawyer is going to do after you graduate. If you think about lawyering, it's a little bit of, or not a little bit, a lot of it, of a risk management position where your job and your role is to manage risk and how best to manage risk than to always exude confidence and always exude that everything is under control. That's, that's actually one of the reasons Obama won uh, his elections was because he's no drama Obama. Mm-hmm. And I'm almost certain, no, there's no almost to it. certainty, there was drama in the Obama world. Uh, But when he's in front of the camera, speaking to people, presenting his plans and ideas, Mm -hmm. there was never any drama. So that's one thing to take away from lawyering is to understand the system, the system of rules, and work those rules to your advantage and make sure that the people that you're representing know that you've gotten them covered.
0: Mm-hmm. I like that a lot. What, what do you feel like are the, the biggest surprise you've had since COVID hit in regards to how the law schools managed the crisis and how you as a student have managed going remote online?
1: Yo, um, I'm surprised by... Um, I'm surprised how, how, how little innovation there is other than, oh, we're going to zoom all the classes. Mm -hmm. Um, to a lot of people, that's a huge innovation in and of itself. But to me, zooming classes is not very innovative. We've had zoom technology forever. And in fact, people have been asking to do remote learning and remote work for decades. And now that we're doing it, people are acting like, oh, this is so innovative. It's not innovative. You know what would be innovative? If, <clears throat> if, um, you know, I don't wanna get into it because I really don't know what would be innovative. I just know that right now what we're doing is not all that innovative. Mm -hmm. Um, I would like to see the schools push boundaries more, but the schools, particularly in the Northeast, which includes New York, they pretty much follow um, what the Ivy League schools do. The Ivy League schools just announced, this this is actually news this week, this very same week, Harvard Law said that 2021 will also be virtual. This very same week, our law school said, oh, we're also, this is official. Uh, our law school says now that 2021 will, will be virtual. So they all take their marching orders from the Ivy League. Um, in the South, I see other schools, um, you don't even have to go that far down South, like um i don't know uh in virginia that's not terrible that's not too far down south Mm -hmm. they do somewhat of a hybrid situation um but it just seems like we have up here in new york a higher aversion to risk Mm -hmm. and i guess that's sort of the prototypical lawyer is you're very averse to risk Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that a lawyer like yourself and myself and future attorneys that are going to law school can really set themselves apart in the business world by being risk takers. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's why both you and I are in the Blip Clinic at Brooklyn Law School, because Professor Askin who runs the Blip Clinic is pretty much the embodiment of a risk taking attorney
0: what makes him a risk taking a turn in your eyes?
1: Um, well, I've, I've had discussions with faculty where they do not feel comfortable with a clinic that is taking on clients. They think that raises the liability that the school might have. Um, so that in and of itself is risky. Uh, also, the Blip Clinic is actually one of the first clinics here at Brooklyn, Brooklyn Law, to allow transactional work to be conducted. Um, and, and it might be the only clinic at Brooklyn Law. and It, it might be one of the few clinics in the entire Northeast. Blib Clinic actually gets compared to uh, the Vermont School of Law model of teaching. I don't know if you've heard about the Vermont model of school of law. No I haven't but Vermont uh, law school, its entire curriculum is much more hands-on, sort of like BLIP. whereas at Brooklyn Law you have to get into a clinic that is hands-on with. Mm-hmm. Vermont Law School, the entire curriculum is hands-on with the idea of uh, imbuing onto their students much more practical experience by graduation. Uh, And across the country, there's a push among legal educators to do this more. There's been some resistance, especially among the traditional law schools. I think Brooklyn Law tries to be a traditional law school. Um, So there's been some resistance in doing experiential learning. But uh, you see that as a, a national movement. And so... I see this in Blip and Professor Askin champions it. And so I think he's somewhat of a risk-taking attorney. Not to say that he's not a measured risk-taking attorney. Any attorney, any lawyer, when taking upon any risk has to be a measured, uh, a, a me- a measured risk-taking approach. Um, that's just the nature of being a lawyer. Right. Interesting.
0: I agree with you that if law
1: school was less lectures
0: and reading out of a textbook based and more hands-on drafting contracts, assignment-based, I, as a three, I would be far more prepared to practice law after taking the bar than I feel now.
1: Yeah, um, it's funny. Most law schools abide by the ABA minimum requirements for, exper- for experiential learning. Um, so what little experiential courses and clinics there are in the law schools is typically the bare minimum that is recommended by the authority. Mm -hmm. Um, But there is a movement of legal educators trying to raise the bar to require more experiential learning. Mm -hmm. So keep that in mind that the law schools are actually the ones dragging their feet when it comes to this new approach. Got it. Except for some law schools like Vermont. Mm-hmm. But then again, um, you can, we can get into the reason why Vermont Law School as a business strategy is setting itself apart as an experiential learning mecca. Right. Uh, but I don't wanna get into that conversation.
0: That's fine. All right, so let's change topics and let me do a round robin Q&A with you where I ask you questions and you give me the answers. What is your title?
1: My title is law student. Um, this semester, I'm calling myself a blipician. It's a play of words, a play on words with blip. We're in the blip clinic and a clinician. So I'm a blipician. Uh, and that's how I sign off my emails as a plate. Love it.
0: What is your, what industry do you work in?
1: What industry do I work in? Um, gosh, man, it's so tough. You know, like which one of the 1,300,832 future uh, industries do I work in uh, right now? Like the weighted average of all million plus of them. <laughs> I, work in, I work in every industry. Mm-hmm. Blip is cool because in Blip, I'm working in uh, the federal communications industry, and I'm working in the healthcare industry, and I'm working in the investment management industry, and then, of course, I'm taking criminal law classes, and I'm taking commercial law classes, and I'm taking securities law classes. Um, All
0: right, that's and, fine. What is your job role? Well, I
1: before we go on, I just wanted to add that it has been recently brought to my attention that maybe I shouldn't have done uh, my uh, course selection the way I've done, where I do so many different things. That, it, in this one person's opinion, it would have been more beneficial to choose all of my classes in a strict limit, in a strict limited confined category of classes, so that I am very strongly um, in one style of legal practice upon graduation, and the argument is that I would be more marketable to that one particular niche in the legal industry. And that argument holds water, but I'm, I've been very happy with my course selection. And even though it's very difficult for me to go from one area of, of legal thinking to another area of legal thinking, it's difficult, but I find it enjoying.
0: Good. That makes me happy to hear. Carla, back to the question. What is your job role?
1: my job role is to make people's uh wishes uh into uh, reality i'm like a genie <laughs> you rub me <laughs> and i come out of the bottle and i make your wish your wish is my commands and i make your wishes into reality right so um whoever the business or the client is or the person that i'm representing is whatever they want um to occur i counsel them i am a counselor so um not every wish can be done some wishes are way outside of what can be expected some wishes are completely illegal but um far and wide my role is to make uh reasonable wishes into reality so i like that it's a client I like approaching my role as customer service.
0: Nice, I like that. What um? What's your favorite law-related book? Oh man,
1: <clears throat> dude, um, I I I have read a few law-related books. Uh, I think my favorite has been. A novel, but it's somewhat—it's it, a nonfiction novel, but man, it's a great novel. Called—it's called. Oh, um, called, um, uh, what's it called? Let me do a quick internet search. <laughs> um, it's okay. You'll get back on, on. Let's come. Let's come back to this question because this this novel is fantastic. Uh, it's about. How a uh, recent legal attorney from uh, I forget what school ended up fighting in um, fighting an environmental uh, health case, and even though all the facts were on his side, he still lost. Mm-hmm. And so, um, oh, I remember what the name of the book was a civil action. I'll check it out. And a civil action is so good. So like I said, he graduated law school. He joins a firm and he challenges an, an environmental lobby uh, that is poisoning the water of a Massachusetts area. And all of the facts are on their side. And they put so much work into being the just party that should win based on interests of justice. But the book shows just how unfair the legal system can be. And honestly, how unfair our world can be. Mm -hmm. That you can have all the facts on your side and have the interests of justice on your side. And yet in the end, we're powerless um, to the system. And the book really really made me rethink about what our justice system really stands for and maybe justice system is a bit of a misnomer so whose justice really is it serving Wow! no great 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 book it's a novel uh so uh it's it's a page turner and now that i have two years of law school under my belt I bet that it would be a great reread. I need to revisit it. It was great. Before I went to law school, I read it. Um, and it would be an even better read now because I probably understand a lot of the motions a lot better. Mm-hmm. But I can't recommend it enough. It, it came out in the 60s. I believe they made a movie about it. But the movie didn't do too good. And I think the titular character, titular character, the protagonist in the, mo- in the movie and in the book, uh, in the movie was played by... Um, was played by um uh, the guy who played the, the, the guy from uh from um what, what's his name from Saturday Night Fever?
0: I don't know, but it's okay. Yeah. So, Carlos, two more questions. Yeah. If you were at a different law school, if you didn't go to Brooklyn Law School and you went to NYU or Harvard or Toro, how do you feel like your experience would differ?
1: I don't think my experience would differ that much, to be honest. Um, except that I think that the upper echelon of law schools have have more activist legal societies and do more things. Um, the legal society that I've been exposed to thus far, they do like a meeting uh, every three months or something. And then, and then uh, maybe they put together a panel where you get three random people talking about uh, the industry in general. Whereas I see that NYU, for example, has a society and they put together a panel uh, run by or a panel where the panelists are already specialized in a particular niche, and that panel is going to be talking about that niche and the entire purpose behind that society is to be activists in that niche. So I guess uh, the upper echelon of law schools have more niche societies. Interesting. And to be honest, that's better for the law students. So I think it would be better for me if I were to attend one of those if they have those niche societies, because that's where the issues become more interesting mm-hmm. is when you uh, drill down and you see the nuance. Mm-hmm. So
0: what, what do you feel like are the biggest issues and challenges facing the legal system today?
1: Oh man, that's a good one. Uh, there, there's a lot, there's a lot to be honest. Um, mm-hmm. Give me one. The, the way that I think about it is we have the headliner issues and then we have the more important issues that don't get headline news. So the headline issues are um, diversity in the uh, judiciary. Uh, the headline news is um, uh, abortion. And these are important, but they're culturally important. And these are the things that make it to the headlines. But what's more important for society are these esoteric decisions or so mass media thinks that they're esoteric, but they're decisions that affect corporate policies which are affecting the economy. So uh, what's more important to the nation than abortion uh, Roe v. Wade? Um, a myriad of other corporate decisions that hardly get any newspaper's attention. So I think that's a way that I frame what's going on in our legal system. And I am positioning myself to be more involved with the unheard of cases and law that is springing up so
0: i like that well, yeah. if, if you were in my shoes what question would you have asked yourself
1: <laughs> that's like um if you were doing my job what would you do <laughs> uh,
0: Yeah. what's a topic of conversation that you are passionate about that you want to dive deep into
1: Oh, man. Um, you know, I really want to dive deep into um, into how um, venture capital and hedge funds operate. Uh, recently, I've been learning about how hedge funds and venture capital have made a specialist practice of lending to companies in bankruptcy mm-hmm. and how with the fees and the, and the preferential treatment that uh, a lender in their position in bankruptcy that all, when it's all said and done that their loan makes like 30%, like above the usury rate, Mm -hmm. Um, but it's totally constitutional. And uh, there's been a lot of debate about it. And uh, I don't know how I fall on that side of the debate, but I know that I personally would love to make that type of profit. (laughs) (laughs) So I want to use the law to help my bottom line.
0: Amen. And last question, if there was one thing you could do to improve this world, what would you do and why?
1: Man, this is great, dude, because this was the question that inspired me to go to law school to begin with. And the one thing that I would do to improve the world and why would be to uh, create more avenues for the typical American in its heartlands to enter into um, the corporate structure in America. Too many jobs and too many sub industries are being subcontracted out. So these are individuals that are being subcontracted that if it wasn't for the subcontracting would be employees of that company and that corporation. And as employees would be receiving employee stock ownership, so that they have some type of ownership in the, in, the, in the behemoth corporation that they're working for. But since they're being subcontracted out, they're not. And this is very analogous too to the Uber workers as well. Um, but that's one thing that I would do to help society is to make more avenues for Americans to enter into American corporate entities. Uh, I would like to see more. I would like to see more Americans become corporate executives than they currently are.
0: Mm-hmm. I follow you. All right, Carlos. Well, that's it for the show. It was great to have you on the podcast. I can tell that, th- that we could have ten more to we'll talk about ten different topics. I really wanted the goal for me was to talk about your experience in the Navy and what it was like to work on a submarine a nuclear submarine but i guess we'll have to save that for the next show
1: all right man sounds good and uh thank you for having me uh you're right in that we can probably talk at least many more times over so i look forward to all of our future discussions both on the podcast and off so that's right well i'd like to um, catch up with you also about what's going on with forage so we'll we'll talk about that sometime whether like i said on the podcast or off sounds good i hope you have a great day. You too, Carlos. Right on. Bye.
0: Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to today's episode with Carlos Horn. If this is not your first episode of Hacking the Hustle, please let me know your thoughts by leaving a comment and clicking subscribe.